In the beginning, there was darkness. A void waiting to be filled with the echoes of destiny. From the depths of time, legends emerged. Heroes forged in the fires of adversity, their stories etched in the fabric of eternity. Through the sands of ancient deserts, across the vast expanse of galaxies, and amidst the tumultuous waves of the ocean, their journeys began. But amidst the chaos, there arose a whisper, a call to action, a beacon of hope. Now, as the world holds its breath, a new tale unfolds, a story of courage, of triumph against all odds. Join us as we delve into the depths of imagination, as we embark on a journey beyond the realms of possibility. For in every tale lies a lesson, in every legend a truth waiting to be discovered. This is not just a podcast. This is an odyssey, a quest for knowledge, a quest for inspiration, a quest for the very essence of what it means to be human. Welcome, dear listeners, to a world of infinite possibilities. Welcome, dear listeners, to the True Life Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the True Life Podcast. We are here with the one and only Benjamin C. George with his um, awesome new book that we've been talking about quite a bit. We've been into some of the new books that may be even coming out in the trilogy later that are not out yet, but they're conceived of in his mind. (laughs) Benjamin C. George, how the heck are you and what's going on? It's another day in paradise, brother. How are you doing? I'm living the dream. Thank you. It's been a... It's been a big week, uh, just as far as getting back into the grind and putting in extra hours. And, you know, it's like everybody who's busy living the dream. There's just not enough time in the day, you know. And <laughs> <laughs> so the grind, the grind takes away from the dream. That's for sure. Yeah. And it, <laughs> yeah, it really does. And then sometimes you wonder, like, what kind of dream is this? Like, what, what's going on here? That brings me to this idea of social constructs. Like how I was thinking about this yesterday, how much of the reality we live in is our own social or is our own construct, you know, or, or, or just a social construct. What's your take on that? Well, I think there's going to be multiple levels for that one. Yeah. Right. I, you know, there is a social construct for sure. Uh, if I, if I go to the park naked, the social construct's going to let me know that that's not appropriate, right? <laughs> right. <Yep. laughs> now, that's not everywhere in the world either, which is interesting. So you get a lot of these different social constructs from where you go. And that's actually one of the things I love most about traveling yeah. was all of a sudden you're in a place where the culture is very different, acceptable is very different, you know, how people feel exception in many differences. Uh, you know, I've been in places where you could see things that people would shoot people for here. And then all of a sudden, everybody's laughing, giving people hugs. You know, it's 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 wild dichotomies of different social constructs all around the world. Uh, and those always kind of are in a in a continual interface with our own personal constructs. Right. 
you know, uh, you know, how we perceive the world, our ver- worldview. If all of a sudden, you know, if that was offensive, if I thought that was an offensive thing to do, but then all of a sudden these people are hugging it out beca- and laughing, how offensive was it? You know, and, and so, you you know, your worldview is in constant contrast to those social dynamics, those social constructs that we're, we're surrounded by. And I think, you know, there's it's not just a single social construct in any one given uh, culture. You have a multitude, right? I mean, you even have a multitude within family units more often than not. And so, you know, those constructs, those frameworks, those things, those, you know, these these ideas of how we you know, what we, how we view all of these aspects of society and self, you know, there's an interplay to those. And I think there's a lot to be, a lot of good information to be mined from that interplay. Uh, from a personal level, just, you know, who am I? What am I doing in this world? What do I want to do in this world? To how does the world work? Where is it going? How to create a model for the world to predict what's going to come down the line? Uh, you know, and a lot of other useful tools, and you can also take it the other way and destroy oneself and one's, <laughs> uh, you know, per, one's position in life if you if you bend to too many social constructs, which I think we we're seeing at a at a grander scale these days. Yeah, uh, John Anthony says interface construct dichotomy. That it's mm. pretty well said right there. Like you pretty come well into said. this. Yeah, way to go, John. Yeah. Thanks for yeah. thanks for commenting and throwing that out there that's a good one i i was rereading um edward bernays on propaganda and okay. you know right in the i think right on the first page it says the minds of men are shaped and designed by other men whom they'll ever know i'm paraphrasing of course but <laughs> you know it's it's fascinating like once that's one of those books like once you read it Every other thing you listen to or read, you'll never see the same again because you once you see something, you can't unsee it. And you begin to see the slant or you begin to see the ideas that are shaped for you. You know, it's almost like the books that you read become a lot like the movie you see. Like it almost transforms them into like, here's this book. Here's this thing that you can imagine. But I would rather you imagine it this way. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what? and it always takes me back to this idea of of what would happen if we didn't have these social constructs around us, like, and specifically like media, what if we didn't have this ongoing onslaught of ideas being streamed to your head? Like, do you, can you remember, I don't know if you can remember a time like that. We were, I guess we always had media when we were young, but what do you think the world would be like? Yeah, it was different, right? It was different. Uh, it was different because, you know, it was everybody tuned into Walter Cronkite to get the news. Right. Uh, and it wasn't this, you know, and granted, you know, the news was still the news. Uh, we just didn't have the uh, the perception to realize how much of it was a narrative at that point. Um, but it wasn't a dichotomous narrative. It was right. just the news. Right. Uh, and, yeah, I mean, those social constructs are going to impact us at every <clears throat> at every single level. Uh and they do. And it's one of the reasons that, you know, just in my thought processes and reasonings over the years is, you know, I realized that to have media, it, it, well, let me rephrase, to have news, especially, mm-hmm. uh, you know, fact-based, science-based type informational distribution, to have that as a for-profit business is wildly 
wildly crazy idea when you look at how it applies to the world, how it gets used, how how it gets abused, uh, who benefits, who suffers from it. I mean, you know, on the on the grand scale of things, there's very few people who actually benefit from having a for profit uh, news source. And those people don't, you know, and, and you're talking point zero one percent of people who actually yeah. benefit from that, you know, even probably less. Uh, and then the rest of everybody is just left to pick up the pieces. So, you know, to your question, if you know, if we found a way to I don't think you ever get away from these social constructs, right? There's always going to be the need for communication, distribution of information, uh, things right. like that. So you, so there's certain social constructs that are kind of foundational to, to culture uh, right. and to how, how we interact at a communal level. Uh, but how we utilize those social constructs, um, and more, I think probably more importantly, you know, who holds the reins to those? Uh, is, is is a very important uh, question that could be that that could really change, you know, the direction of society. Because now imagine, throw it back at you, what if we had social constructs where there wasn't, uh, you know, a for-profit business model driving this thing, and instead it was just to relay information. Now and in, now, how does that change the conversation? You know, for me, I think that changes the conversation of instead of people talking about the headline and hating each other because the headline said to hate this group and, you know, and this is how we feel about this issue and this is how we feel about this issue. Now it's this is just the news. And then the and then the conversation evolves around something that is a, a shared piece of information similar to how we can't really have a great conversation unless, you know, we, we kind of define our terms. You know, uh, in that's kind of like a, a large scale definition of terms at a at a communal, at least or a societal level where people then can actually use that as a springboard to elevate that conversation. Yeah, that's well said it. You know, we it seems like we never get to defining our terms anymore. And you can see it yeah. in our discourse. <laughs> like, you know, I, there was a, a, a very interesting interview on uh Sometimes I'll watch or listen to the old interviews of like Chomsky versus Buckley, mm-hmm. you know, and it's like this discourse is just you just see these two guys sitting across from each other. And there are some slings and arrows, but they're, you know, they're not ad hominem attacks. They're more like they're well-intentioned barbs. Well, <laughs> well, yeah. And they're funny and they're good mm-hmm. and they're direct and they're the other person is has to think about their answer and it he doesn't retaliate with something silly or dumb or slanderous straw man ad hominem you know which all is, of them they, which is all you see whenever you see a, a debate these days or a conversation yeah it, yeah it's um it, it's a lost art almost uh though i did see one the other day there was i think oh, who was it i think it was brett weinstein mm. so it, not too much as a of a surprise there uh having a conversation with somebody that was he fundamentally disagreed with and it was a great conversation they both they both made good points to their to their underlying arguments uh and it was one of those things where yeah you could feel the tension at times because it was you know there was a couple barbs that were thrown because it was like how are you going to stand on that type of reasoning which is where those barbs are really kind of meant for in those types of conversations. Yeah. It's to attack the reasoning, the logic right. behind the position. 
Right. And, you know, it was just the back and forth that went really, really well. At the end, they, you know, were both smiling and happy that they had the conversation with one another. They still didn't agree. And that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> but how many times do you see that? That was, that was like, that was a rare, a rare fruit right there. I mean, most of the times you turn into any sort of conversation with uh, opposing views and it becomes, you know, pretty ad hominem pretty quick and, you know, pretty credentialed and, you know, pretty authoritative. And, oh, you can't say that because you didn't, you know, study at Cambridge under X and X. And so you can possibly know the, you know, what, what this really means. You know, it's like, okay, you know, if you're just going to, if that's your worldview, if that's how you're going to approach these situations, you're never going to expand that. And you're never going to have any meaningful conversation come out of things like that. And, I, you know, by and large, that's the conversations that are happening, especially in the most, sadly, the most important places in the world, the political arena that affects everyone in the world. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it I think that's an astute point when you talk about the news becoming for profit. And I remember being a young kid and there was some talk show, not that talk shows are news, but it was the, it was Joan rivers mm. and somebody else on there. And they were talking about some sort of social issue. And the guy had brought up her race. Like, you know, well, that's what you get for being a white person that doesn't. And like, mm. the, you should have seen the look of how offended she was like, and she just crushed him. She's like, how dare you bring something up like that in a conversation? Have you ever, where are your parents at? Like, have you, do you have any idea what kind of damage you can do to people when you say things? That you, she just unloaded on this guy. And I remember looking at it like, oh, like that was the first time. And I, it was the first time I realized what that move was. Like, oh, you got, I always tell my daughter, when you, when you got the truth, you pound the truth. When you get the facts, you pound the facts. When you got nothing, you pound the table. And like that was the ultimate pounding the table. Like the guy had nothing, oh, yeah. so he's cut her a racist, you know. And mm -hmm. it was the first time that for me it clicked. Like, oh, you just put this label on them, and then you can walk away, and you do all the damage, and you come out on some level getting to hold your head up, or yeah, yeah. And so it, it's, it, and then you know, fast forward now, some you know, probably twenty five years since that's really started to come back into society because. For a while, there was no, there was nothing like that. In fact, you know, I remember a time when if you were to call somebody a racist or, or something like that, you know, that was a serious accusation. Yeah. Like that, that wasn't willy nilly, you know, or, you know, you, that was like, oh, we need to have a, you know, basically a conversation or committee about this because this is some serious business. Yeah. Like that just wasn't accepted anymore. But then when it became the straw man argument, now it's almost meaningless. Fast yeah. forward twenty some years. Yeah. Right. You know, everybody's been called a racist seven times if they've had any opinion, <laughs> either direction, yeah. really. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, which is a wild thing. And, and so now, one of the most heinous acts of transgressions against your fellow human is almost a meaningless insult because it's just thrown at everybody. And these are, you know, when you, we don't have these these proper conversations, when stuff like that gets to just happen because, yeah, you have a, a cheering squad out there who will send you a thousand likes. <clears throat> we end up with in a lot of problems, you know, and not just from a, a country level, but you know, or societal level, but at, at the personal level, too. 
I mean, you know, you have people who are so embroiled into that tribalism now because of the reinforcement loops of all of these patterns that they're, they're almost lost to reasonable interaction on, on, on any side you want to look at in almost any situation. The, the extremes of those are so extreme now that they're not even, they're so beyond reason and that, and sadly, most of it's becoming extreme. I mean, we're, you know, we're just seeing the push to the extremities at this point. Yeah, I would, I would add to that two points. The first point being, once you give permission to society to start throwing around words like that, you almost give permission to society to start acting like that, because it's no longer a taboo. That's a good point. Right. And, and, Mm -hmm. and on top of that, or adding to that, you know, when you, when you think about the world is made of language, you know, when you look at metaphors, a metaphor is a creative way to show someone your construct. You know, when we say, when we say uh, argument is war, I'm telling you how I think about the argument. Like I'm trying to win. It's not like I'm trying to solve a problem. I'm already mm-hmm. at war because I'm in an argument. Right. So, you know, and, and, take no prisoners in an argument. Like there's all these metaphors around war and argument. And isn't that interesting that maybe that's why our arguments end up in war is because we're already thinking about the argument as a war. So if we're already thinking about people as a racist, we've already decided they are a racist. We're not, we're no longer hanging, having a conversation mm-hmm. about what's right or wrong. Cause we've already decided that. Right. And, and like we had said earlier in the conversation, imagine a kid that grows up, you know, that's at the age of five or six, and they're already surrounded by the media. They're surrounded and inundated by different speakers. You know, maybe you like them, maybe you don't. Maybe you think they're right, maybe you don't. Maybe they are, maybe they're not. But a kid getting bombarded with that is changing the way he thinks and beginning to use language in a way that will change society forever. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think that that is something that is is worth talking about for just a little bit more is the language that we're using fundamentally changes the society we live in. And I, I think that kind of brings us back to it no weaponizes. It, it, yeah. And it weaponizes it. I mean, we're weaponizing children right now. Yeah. I, there's no denying that. I, look at all the stuff that's happening in school boards and book bannings and teaching of X, Y, and Z and not teaching of X, Y, and Z and all this stuff. I mean, we have, turn children into a weapon yeah shame on everybody involved (laughs) yeah it's true you you think you want to collectively rob a generation of children of their childhood that's a horrible horrible thing and you should be ashamed of yourself regardless regardless of what side of the argument you're on you're weaponizing the children. You're putting them in the middle of the argument. You're not being grown up enough to figure out a better solution so you don't have to weaponize the children. Shame on you. Everybody on all sides. Yeah, well put. What what would that be? You're As a systems guy and someone that works with system and understands the decay of systems and the breaking down of systems and the rebuilding of systems, what if, if we say that the construct or the the language model is wrong or the input model is wrong what would that be in a system what would be the the analog or what would be the analogy of that in a system breaking down uh, so it's 
let's go ahead and break it down to an ecosystem because a nice. lot of people are more familiar with that. Uh, you know, so let's just call it a river that's okay. generating this ecosystem. Uh, whenever you, the analog of like news and information would kind of be along with a few other pillars of that, I would say, you know, things like healthcare, um, uh, you know, things like transparency in government, things like that. Those are going to be the borders of the river. It's right. going to, it's going to define how the system tra traverses through the environment. Uh, and without, you know, without define, without those defined borders, all of a sudden the water just washes away and, right. and it seeps into the ground without, you know, there's a lot of different aspects to that metaphor that we could draw into. But I think to answer your question, I think it would be, you know, that and a few other pillars of society were kind of defined the 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 outline of the ecosystem, if you will. So with. So in that aspect, what we're seeing now is just the dissipation of the whole ecosystem. If, if we don't right. have those borders. Right. If there's no border, if there's no outline to it, you're just you're just watching it basically bleed off into the ether, um, mm. you know, without a channel for that yeah. water to run through. Uh, it's going, you know, it's just going to spread out, sink into the ground and go back down to the aquifer. And there has to be a, you know, it's there's a reason, not just height and elevation changes and whatnot, but there's reasons that waterways develop in certain places as opposed to others. There's, you know, the rocky understructures, there's the, you know, the certain faunas, and that defines the, you know, where is that, the route of that river, that water system. And those are all of those kind of pillars of society, the news and the information, the health, the, the things that need that you would need in a community to run a community that are extenuous to a single individual i would say so that makes me start thinking okay if we look at the world that we live in and the breakdown of society if we look at the breakdown of society like a map of the so-called global warming according to like the alarmist and stuff they say hey all these all these low-lying lands are going to be flooded. All these these islands are going to be covered up. And this may not be popular. I'm just spitballing here, but you know, it seems to me that when I listen to the some of the climate alarmists, they they talk about some islands, some third-world nations that are going to be covered in water. Might might regardless if it's Regardless if it's climate change or the sun or it's a breakdown in the monetary system, the same people are going to die. And if we mm. take it back to our water metaphor, like if we take it back to the, the minority streams that, that branch off the water system, they're going to get the less water. Mm. But the mainstream is still going to get – it's going to flow down this area it's flowing to. You know, and it, the borders might be hazy or whatever. You're not going to be able to – you're not going to be able to push it. Be able to push the water into the little tributaries that you had because if it breaks down, the water is going to go wherever it wants, and that mm -hmm. water is going to go to the majority of where it went before. Does that mean like that you're going to maybe, maybe that's that, that kind of seems to me like that's what global warming is is just a way of taking money, and we look at it from a systems point of view, it's just a way of taking money or taking water from the main group of flow. And dishing it out to the little tributaries, to try to keep these little fish okay and keep these fish okay. And I'm not saying those fish don't deserve to live, but 
if those fish live in a habitat that's not real, that habitat's not going to make it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's just it's weird to think about how the all the systems parallel each other, and it doesn't matter what right. label you put on it. And they're in a constant state of change as well. Yeah, that's, that's something that's that's usually not highlighted. And when people talk about these things, it's like it, we'll we'll go with the you know the climate thing. Yeah, you can have these these nations that potentially would disappear from an ocean rise. But if you chart back 10,000 years, the oceans have risen 400 some feet. Yeah. Uh, are you going to retroactively go back and tell all those people that, you know, <laughs> we're sorry we didn't save your nation? No, I mean, it's it, there's there. I think what it really comes down to, too, is that there is a sincere lack of a, a, a consistent worldview out there. Uh, you know, I don't know about you, but what I was taught about the world was pretty much absolute garbage. <laughs> yeah uh you know it took it took years and years and years of my life dedicated study to actually get some sort of comprehension about what's going on in the world let alone what the world is let alone where we came from and maybe where we might be going these are all questions that most people have zero concept of uh and i think that's a problem you know if if, if your worldview is confined by the social constructs of what you digest from television and then what you go out and laugh and talk about when you're drunk with your friends all week long, you're going to have a very limited perspective on these systems and how they impact lives. Not, maybe not your life, but definitely other people's lives. And, you know, that when you when you don't have the, those perspectives, now the choice that you have to make when you're involving yourself with these systems is, you know, well, how's it going to affect me? You know, it, because if there's no perception of, of it really affecting other people, because, well, you know, for a lot of reasons, either I don't know or that's somebody else's problem is probably the, usually the two main categories that that gets thrust into. Uh, you know, you're either you're just perpetuating a problem. And I think by and large, because of just the structures that we've had, the way society's grown, the rapidity of which it's grown, um, the systems that were implemented in order to facilitate that growth have defined us into a very limited uh, perspective of reality, of, of society, and where we can go. And unfortunately, those limitations are give the people who have everything all of the money. <laughs> <laughs> And resources, yep. and then the re- and they'll decide what the, what is good for the rest of everybody else. That's really a bad system. It's been proven to be a bad system. It hasn't worked over and over and over again for as long as we've recorded history. Yet we like to repeat the process. Uh, so, and you know, the thing is, but if people realize that we've tried this over and over again throughout history, they would say, "Well, why are we repeating this process? What can we do different?" Then you have a new conversation. But if yeah. that, but if that, if that piece of knowledge never exists, then it's just like, well, I guess on to the next ruler. We'll see what they say. You know, hopefully we get a good one this time and not a Euro. <laughs> you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was. Uh, I've been reading this book called um, what's it? It's called the Evolution of Civilizations. That was, I think, I, I don't. I, it's called the Evolution of Civilizations, and it's by Carol Quigley. Mm-hmm. And he just talks about the rise and fall of different civilizations, and you know, there's different. There's these different parts of the system that we go through. And when we get who averaged it out to 250 years. Yeah. Yeah, he is. Nice call. Yeah, that's what I thought. That's what I thought. Yeah. Yep. And he's, uh, I think he was Bill Clinton's mentor. And he was also, he also wrote a book called, um, 
oh god uh, tragedy and hope which hmm. is the it's the story of the people that boom the system and blow up the system and he was like and he's an architect of our system mm-hmm. and he's he okay we're at year 230 guess what boys start start rigging it up we're gonna blow this thing you know and we're, he tells you mm-hmm. everything he names names mm-hmm. and you know you start reading that stuff and it's it's a thick it's a monster man it's like 800 pages but look the guy's telling you here's where we're at here's <laughs> what's gonna happen you know and it's yeah once you read it you're like oh my god it's all bullshit it's all bullshit man right and so but in this book he goes into the ideas of like okay here's what happens at like year two one between 180 maybe you make it to 250 if you're if you have a good one but here's mm-hmm. normally what happens around 180 is that you have this top heavy system and you got three things he says when the the instrument of expansion becomes institutionalized Mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. is the very foundation of problems and if we oh, yeah. use the, the yeah right so if we have capitalism oh, yeah. as the instrument of expansion but then capitalism becomes state capitalism and becomes an institution okay that instrument no longer works that knife is blunt it no longer cuts and mm-hmm. so you just you have you can make the knife bigger and bigger and bigger but it's still not sharp so it's not going to do anything and you just try to jam it in there but <laughs> you know it's, it's not cutting the way it used to and so at that point, there's three things that can happen. One, society can come up with a new instrument of expansion. And that's mm-hmm. what you see. Like the military industrial complex has been our instrument of choice for capitalism, but it's not really working that well anymore. So now right. we are we are pumping all of our money into big tech, into big pharma. Mm-hmm. We're desperately looking for a new instrument of expansion. And I think that that's a big part of what COVID was. Hey, can we expand this thing through healthcare? Can can we expand this through new drugs that will change the body? Here's all of our money. What do you, but that just shows how desperate things are. So that's right. one way. And that's the, that's, that's the best way to continue to move the ball forward is to expand with a new instrument. The second part is that you can reform the institute that you already have. And that would be what say a lot of people in the United States want to do, or that's, that's the object of nationalism is mm-hmm. to reform the instrument that God is going. But the people on top want no part of that. Cause that means they're out of there. They're like, wait, right. let's just do they lose. One. Yeah. They lose their top. Yeah. yeah they, they, they lose being <laughs> at the, at the tip of the spear and all the goodies that come with it. And mm-hmm. the third is just, decay and and chaos and and back in there and if you just take a moment to think about those three things you can really begin to see all three of them taking shape and i think the world Mm -hmm. makes a lot more sense when you start looking at it from that aspect oh especially if then you go through historical records and you look at you know the 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 arcs of like the roman empire of you know uh france in the 1400s so you know you look at these different arcs throughout history and you go oh okay yeah you know this seems to play out pretty consistently um uh, yeah it's it's a really interesting thing i you know i think we've been exploring for different mechanism of expansion for a while the internet seemed to be that and it and it did kick the can down the road yeah uh the problem was is that i think the internet in all of its capacity of change was subverted by mm. the institutionalized capitalism yep. that already existed in the world. Yep. 
and eventually it just got co-opted and then corrupted um, to the point where now, you know, how many monopolies are there in the world? There's a couple. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, you know, everything's on the cloud. Uh, you know, every business, you can't, you can't go have a VC talk without, Hey, what's your AWS deployment or how are you deploying on Azure? Uh, you know, and these are, you know, it's like, well, we're not using the cloud. Well, we're not giving you any money because that's what everybody does. They do yeah. it on the cloud. You have to do yeah. it on the cloud, <laughs> which is wild to me. You know, before we started this conversation, we were talking about uh, OBS, which is mm -hmm. uh, open broadcasting software, which is something you can use to do podcasting if anybody's out there is curious. Uh, and it's open source. And, you know, those open source projects, it takes a little bit more learning. There's not the there's not the interface that allows you just to say, click, okay, yeah. I'm live. You know, it, it takes a little bit more effort, but the resource of having that to as your own resource, that was the promise of the internet and the promise of technology was being able to, at the click of a button, I had all of these, you know, beautiful deployable systems that at the at my fingertips that I could then use to create and explore. Um, and by and large, those are getting usurped for monthly subscription fees, right? Yep. Uh, so I think the internet was originally, you know, kind of society's release valve, if you will, looking for that next evolution of expansion. Uh, and then as it got co-opted, I think that's why we're running into what we're running into now is now it's now we're looking at the the other form of our societal expansion which is the military industrial complex because the because this didn't work for us now we're going back to the other one well the problem with the other one is that it already had stagnated you know that <laughs> that way of life had already stagnated but it was freaking effective right yeah yeah <laughs> And that's the and that's why things are going that way is because it was simply regardless of stagnation, it's effective to drop bombs on people. Apparently, you know, uh, what's that say about us as a species? That's probably a different conversation. <laughs> yeah, I I think that uh, you know, if we look at what made the there's another book by Thomas Piketty and it's called Capital. And in that book, he talks about the ideas of capital, you know, from the beginning of time until now. And he says that what we saw in the industrial age, the last 100, 200 years, is just this minor blip on the radar where there was an actual middle class. Capital mm -hmm. coagulates. Oh, yeah. it's, it's all up here. There's oh, two yeah. classes. There's really, really wealthy people. And then there's just slaves. And what you saw over the last 200 years was this little blip, mainly because the rest of the world was wiped out and the United States just took all the money from the rest of the world because they were the only ones still afloat. And if in some ways, I think that that is the model that we're looking at now. Like, okay, let's just go bomb everybody. And then they have to buy our stuff. And maybe that's the unipolar world we talk about it. You could argue that's kind of what's happened. Like, I, I think that Europe is in real trouble with their currency with their, yeah. you know, their more tribalism than anything. And they're, they're big problems right now. Well, you know, they, they tried this grand idea of the yeah. euro. Um, and which might have actually had a play had Brexit not come into the picture. Because yeah. now all, the, all that old tribalism in Europe 
just went right to the top of the heap. Yeah. Right. All, you know, even if it's been a couple generations buried, all of a sudden it was like, oh, it's those Brits again. Yeah. Or, you know, from the other perspective is, oh, it's the French. They're trying to take it over. And it just became this, you know, uh, you know, all that old tribalism just rose to the top. Uh, from an economic perspective, it started out fantastic. When yeah. that euro came out, you know, it was two to one on the dollar. I mean, I remember meeting people on my travels from Europe who were, they were having the time of their life. Not only was it two to one on the dollar, but they're in, you know, Central America where everything's a tenth of the price of, in the yeah. United States. So they're living a lap of luxury. And now it's pretty much on parity with the dollar, I think. Um, yeah. So, you know, if you just look at it from that perspective, that was what the past 13, 15 years. They went from having two times the value to just one. So they've lost half their value from just kind of a global, you know, buying power perspective in the past 15 years. That's wild. That is wild. When you talk about on a whole of a scale of, you know, GDPs and all this stuff and what people are making, what they're spending, how they're interacting with the world. So, yeah, I think they have a lot of very large problems when it comes to that. Um, not, not to mention the fact that, you know, you have a very different dichotomy of, of governance throughout a lot of those countries where you have really large leanings to socialism. And then, you know, you have, you know, I, I think that's why Brexit originally you know, took hold, too, is because you have these archaic systems like the monarchy and, and more of a, you know, a democratic type system. Uh, and then you had these, you know, socialist systems that were being played and those how are you going to get along? Yeah. Uh, you know, because at the end of the day, one of those is playing to take advantage of the other. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yep. Yeah. It, it's interesting to see how uh, in some ways, in just in my lifetime, I can see the acceleration of policy. And I remember when I was younger, it was like, when, right when right when the European Union came out, it was like, oh, okay, they're going to be the European Union. We're going to be the Amero. You know, we're going to have these mm -hmm. blocks. But like mm -hmm. that that whole model went to shit with Europe. Like, it, I think it. You know, not too long after after the Euro came out, you know, there were skeptics that were like, dude, this is never going to work because of what you said. Like, these are societies are thousands of years old. You're not just going to put them together and they're going to work. And then right. there was the, okay, well, what we need is a unified military. That would work. Mm -hmm. And so you saw like these sort of outbreaks or, hey, we're all going to go to the Middle East as Europe now. And like, we're going to be a team, you know, <laughs> but it didn't work. And when that didn't work, plans for the Amero got scrapped. Like, okay, well, this doesn't work. We can't do that. And now, you know, there's this big rollout of digital currency that was probably going to be like SDRs, like the special drawing rights. So we're going to have this one currency. And I think a lot of people still feel that way. However, I, the more that I look at the destruction of the euro and the grand strategy of unifying world government, the more ridiculous it seems to me. Like it just well, doesn't, it's just too big. And I agree. Well, and it goes back to what we we're talking about before. I mean, you know, the social constructs are yeah. entirely different animals. They don't even yeah. speak the same languages. They're right. not defined. Their terms are not defined. They just right. decided we're going to have the same currency. <laughs> currency, while it does make the world go round, it does not. It does not drive, you know, social economic constructs. You know, those are right. derived from from human to human interactions and, uh, 
and it's not something like you said these are thousand year old institutions it's not right. something that changes overnight when grandma when you were being raised and grandma told you this is how it is that implants in your brain when you're an adult and all of a sudden you're faced with something that's counterdictive to that yeah you might have the logic and reason ability uh, to take the evidence and and make some sort of a rational uh, equation out of that but how many people do and how many people are, are going back to what grandma told them or, you know, you know, the stereotypes that persist throughout society that are easy to fall back upon when things start to struggle at, when you have these hodgepodge of ideas like the, like the European Union. So, you know, I think without the proper definition of terms, like why are we doing this? What are we doing it for? What's the end outcome? Who's going to benefit? You know, all of these things, those, those were never discussed. It was yeah. just a hip hop hooray idea. Look at us. Uh, uh, here's another. Here's another tack on my resume. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's mind blowing to me to think that I, when I think about it from that aspect, you know, I begin to see the reasoning behind a unifying message. Call it propaganda or call it a unifying message. But if you want everyone to be on board. You got to get everybody believing in something similar. And it seems to me that our message is like this scientific materialism, you know, or some sort of materialism reduction. And that maybe that's one reason we're going into this place and killing everybody. It's like, hey, look, this is the system we're using. Get on board. And once you get everybody on board, then you can give them the money. But see, if, but I, I, you're always that's always going to fail. It's always going to fail, man. It's right. always going yeah. to fail because right. because, you know, you have to. You can't tell people that they have to get on board. They have to decide <laughs> that they want to get on board. Yeah, yeah. And so yeah. if you're not creating the if you're not fostering the proper environment for people to to have the reasonable ability, the logical ability to reason themselves in the position of why they want to be on board. Right. It it will fail eventually. That's a crack yeah. in the system. Now, if everybody gets on board with a consistent language, a consistent definition of terms, a consistent idea of, you know, a worldview, a consistent outlook on, you know, humanity, all of a sudden, now you can have cooperation. Now you can have teamwork. The problem is, is you can't just go off and start this from the top down overnight. You can't yeah. say, hey, we're the euro. Doesn't work. <laughs> because people are like, I'm not a euro, I'm a Spaniard. <laughs> Right. Like I've been a yeah. Spaniard my entire life. Why am I a Euro now? Like, yeah. I, I don't get it. And, and, you know, that's just very, very elementary looking at it. But those things run very, very deep in cultures deep. and in the different social constructs in those countries. So, yeah, you you don't get to make a top down solution for something like this. This has to be a, you know, a, this has to be a rational conversation with reasonable people taking a logical outlook on things and agreeing to work together, compromise, uh, define their terms, you know, all of these things that, you know, we, we call community, but are really kind of lost from community these days uh, at most scales. So it's an interesting quandary, but I think, I, and I think we're going to, we're going to watch the solutions unfold in real time personally. Yeah. What, you know, why is it? I, I don't I don't understand why nationalism is such a pejorative. Like what why? Is it is it sometimes well, because, I hear the argument? Yeah. 
Well, I mean, I think, you know, when you hear nationalism, you hear, well, somebody's, you know, they're better than somebody else is usually one of those things. Um, or it becomes to where does nationalist nationalism come from? Uh, well, we all know that the only reason borders are defined is because people were killed. So, you know, that, you know, in our world today, right? You know, I don't yeah. think you can say that there's a single country uh, that didn't war themselves into their current state. Yeah. I mean, that's just where we are. So, you know, nationalism is incumbent upon war and death. And so I think, yeah, I think there's something to be said about that when you, when people become nationalists and get, or, you know, and there's those populist movements mm. is because, you know, historically speaking, when that happens, people die. <laughs> and so I think, you know, it, that's an easy way for something to become a pejorative. Uh, right. You know, at the same time, somebody who enlisted in the military, their family was military. They, they've never heard anything but hoop, hoop, hurrah looks at nationalism as, you know, an idealistic perspective, right? So it's very much, again, going to come back down to those social constructs, the terms that are defined at the individual level and the communal level, the societal level. But I think the pejorative of, of nationalism has be, is, is partly because we just have access to more, more history uh, and we can communicate openly, kind of, these days, about that history. Uh, I mean, I, I would be really interested to see if there was actually a nation alive today that didn't have any sort of uh, war that, that put it in its place. I, I, yeah, can't, I, I can't, off the top of my head, I can't think of one. Like, hmm. you know, I, when I think of, I, when I think of ideas, like it seems to me everybody's better off when the best idea wins mm -hmm. and you know we're not even allowed to have conversations about nationalism or populism like it's such a threat to the structure that these things are off the table when something's off the table you know you, you can't even begin to like i don't like and that and that's what blows my mind is like there's so many people at the top that are not even willing to have a discussion or allow people to participate in the discussion. Like I realize populism could be bad on a global scale. I realize that populism may not be the best well, thing because well, some of the on. people, yeah, if, if it was populism for, Hey, we're planet earth and we're rallying against the, the aliens and in independence day, that's populism for humanity. I think that would be a great populism. Right. But yeah. we, we seem incapable of achieving that level of populism because it's not about humanity. It stops at, it stops at, you know, football team. It stops at city. It stops at, you know, state. It stops at country. It stops. There's all these stops along the way before we actually get to, Hey, we're all a bunch of apes on a rock hurling through space, you know, but I think if, Hey, if we're apes on a rock hurling through space, if, if that's our identifying characteristic that binds us together, and that was our populist movement, yeah, heck yeah. Because, and to be frank, you know, the existential crisis is facing humanity, which most people don't even ever think about in their lifetime. They're they outweigh every every threat of every nation state, every neighbor trying to steal your crap, all these populist movements, nationalism, it outweighs all of those by orders of magnitude. These are things that 
we have the evidence to say that it has wiped out life on this planet before multiple times yeah there's nothing else that's wiped out life on this planet multiple times that we're aware of <laughs> and yeah. so that technically should be our greatest you know our greatest adversary however we are we're divided by these ideas these these lesser these lesser steps in that populism <laughs> yeah and, and that that's you know national populism and nationalism can be that but it, it just blows my mind that the, the people in positions of authority like we're not listen man you guys are a bunch of nationalist hubristic donkeys you know like but like why the same people that refuse to let their people talk about nationalism are the same people that say listen i'm in charge of the nation me i'm in charge of this they're also like, the same person who's going to call somebody a racist <laughs> they're also this you know because yeah. because the reality is, is shutting down those conversations is in their best interest it is it allows them to remain in a position of power authority making money what have you uh those conversations are going to remove those people just as they always have in the past right <laughs> you know because it's you know if you look at it the populist movements of, of history were all when the the authoritative ruling body had shit the bed so extraordinarily bad that everybody was willing to give up their entire livelihoods to make sure that that person could not exist in that position any longer. Yeah. That's, you know, that's a very powerful thing from a perspective of the people versus, you know, how, how the people are ruled. But that's also a very, you know, that's taught in every authoritative, I want to be a, a dictator class, right? Is, <laughs> Figure out how to make sure the people don't think you're the enemy. <laughs> right, right. You should probably try to divide them by color, by race, by you start <laughs> any to divide means them as necessary. You can. Yeah, any means necessary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What? Let me ask you this: What percentage of people in positions of authority are there because they deserve to be? Like, and what? Like, what hmm. do you think? <sighs> I think, yeah, loaded question, surely. <laughs> Absolutely. But I would almost argue that most should not be. Uh, you know, people who seek positions of authority uh, often have some character flaws that allow them to manipulate that position of authority. Um, right. Otherwise, you know, why would you want to rule somebody? I, I, know. I, you know, I, I don't think anybody who's a well put together human, well adjusted, has some life experience, has seen love, experienced joy, wants to rule anyone. And if you want to rule somebody, I would, I would argue that, well, you probably have something lacking internally. Yeah. So I would say most, if not all. Now, there are a few exceptions where people, you know, like, it's just that much shit and somebody has to stand up and there's the one guy who's like, yeah, I'll do it. Yeah. I don't want that it. Does but happen. Yeah, exactly. But I, you know, those are going to be on local levels. I think more right. than anything, I don't think that transitions to any sort of, you know, state or national level. I think that's just going to be your, you know, maybe a local mayor for a small town type idea. Uh, but I think by and large, most people, and, and, you know, look at these people's uh, bank accounts. <laughs> I think that's an easy correlation to draw. Who yeah. got involved in this because they were wanting to do good for people? How much money do they have in the bank? That's probably a fair ratio of how much good they wanted to do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's a great point to think about it from that angle. It's it's some it's sometimes it's the person that feels called to do it. But yeah, I think you know how much money you have in the bank. And it's weird because 
it's almost like money is a moat and it keeps people that can do good away from the castle. Like, Hey, if you're, mm -hmm. if you can't cross this moat, then you can't fucking play. Well, that's right. It's just mm -hmm. a, a well, how do system. I cross the moat? Well, we'll give you the money, but, <laughs> but you have to, you have to play this way, this way, and this way. Right. Right. <laughs> we, we're going to need pictures of your kid. Um, mm. <laughs> Right. <laughs> By the way, have you visited an island recently? Yeah. If not, here's a ticket for you. Private plane and all. Yep. You know, it's I was I was thinking about that the other day. Just you know, when you look at the people in positions of authority, it's almost like they've been self-selected. There, there's a great book by John Ronson called The Psychopath Test. And in mm. that in that book, he gives like 20 questions of do you think this? Have you had that happen? Where you know, and in that book, he argues that something ridiculous, like ninety-five percent of people running Fortune five hundred companies or that are involved in this particular aspect of government answer eighty percent of these questions affirmative. You know, mm -hmm. and it's it's I interesting to think about how those character traits have been amplified for people in positions of authority. Absolutely. And I can speak to that just my own entrepreneurial path. Um, you know, the reasons I got screwed or were because I wasn't that. Yeah. And I wasn't willing to make that decision that would <laughs> enable that type of thing. You know, it was yeah. just like, I it was like, no, we're, we're not going to go that direction. Well, then all of a sudden, you know, it's, it, and then it's, it's a pool that kind of just self-selects itself yeah. all the way up. And then people who are less willing to compromise on their morals and ethics don't make it further up those rungs. Yep. Um, and entrepreneurship is a little bit of a, a nuanced one because there are true. Sure. So there are true. There are true stories where people who are just good people with a great idea manage to accomplish something. Right. But if you look at every single one of those stories. Yeah, those were like the blip of a company. It's not a multinational conglomeration. It's not something that's been lasting generations. It's not one of these things that's manipulated into one of these massive NGOs. No, there. It's a story about a good company with a good product that had a lifespan. It, in in most all of those cases it, it, that I'm aware of. Uh, so, yeah, I think. From entrepreneurship, there are some some nuances to it, but by and large, on on the scale of like politics, <laughs> I don't think there's much to question. I mean, just look at how these people answer questions. I mean, look at how they, yeah. you know, look at what they say on Twitter. You know, it, if it's even if it's something completely unrelated to them, it has to be about them. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And to be fair, that's also how you get popular. Right. You don't get sure. popular by not by not doing that. Very few people. Popularity is a similar thing. Right. You know, fame is a similar thing. You know, it's the people who are willing to go out there and, you know, constantly pound the pavement is part of it. The other part of it is, you know, a lot of people, especially like if you look at any sort of personality on the, in, in the information arena, the media arena, all of those are because they decided to, oh, that person's the devil. That person's evil. Yeah. This is bad. You should believe this. This is the truth. Blah, 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 blah. That's, that's how they got their popularity. 
Yeah. And, you know, so, you know, it's not too much of a, of a surprise why we see that that story played out in the media <laughs> almost every single day. Right. Yeah. And yeah, it, it it's this weird marriage between image and construct and power. You know, and if you sat, if you look back at some of the debates between like the Lincoln Douglas debates where, you know, they're traveling to like, mm. you know, all the states and they're debating for four hours and they're throwing out these beautiful barbs. Like it's the old adage of you, I toil and make the bread and you eat it, you know, and like mm-hmm. just talking to these farmers, like these beautiful debates and questions being thrown. And, and now you have like these, three minutes you have like this coward oh, terrible <laughs> oh man like a three minute debate and then okay let's go brought to you by pfizer you know and like mm-hmm. it's, it's more of a a show and more of a an attempt well, wag to, the dog right yeah exactly man exactly i i think that one of the ways we can make the world better is by getting back to incredible speakers and debates and I agree putting out you. images, right? I agree with you. I mean, I had the idea. I wanted to launch like gauntlet TV, you know, like throwing the gauntlet. Yeah. And just, just like a live debate thing. Yeah. Um, it, it, it could work. Uh, it's one of those things where, it, you know, it sounds great on paper because you're like, oh, hell yeah, you get these two people to debate on a real debate, not where right. you know, there's a moderator, not any of this garbage, but a real right. debate. That would be amazing. That would be well, awesome. it, the reality of that situation is, is that the person who's likely to lose that debate is not going to engage in the live debate. Right. Because they're pretty well aware that they've already, they're going to lose the debate. Right. And they have handlers right. around them that are aware that they're going to lose the debate. Now, you sh- sure, you'll get a few schmucks here and there, but I think by and large, it would be very, very hard to get quality debates from people these days, at least the people who are in positions of power. I mean, it would be great. You know, it'd be easy to get people, you know, everyday people having debates yeah. and having real conversations. The problem with that is, you know, people don't see the value in that. Um you know, they see the value in it from like a podcast perspective, but from like a debate perspective, nobody's calling for debates. Nobody wants to see Joe Biden talk on stage versus, you know, Donald Trump. I, you know, and even if they do, I, you know, I don't, but, (laughs) (laughs) um, you know, it's, it's one of those things where it's, I don't think it sounds great on paper, but in practicality, I don't think it it gets there. If it did, it would be fantastic. Imagine if primetime television was, tonight's debate yeah. you know and instead of having football stars or celebrity stars it was the the verbal linguist of, of of our time that were able to articulate themselves in such a manner that elucidated ideas and inspired innovation and you know created motivation and was able to hash out good ideas from bad ideas i think it's a wonderful idea i but i think the the practicality in terms of uh you know would a network launch it today? No. Could a grassroots no. thing launch it today? Sure. Uh, it would just be one of those things. It probably takes some time to build up. Right. But the only way you would kind of get the gotchas was to get one of those people who has the handlers to get on a debate, you know, and those are going to, you're going to be hard pressed to do that. Yeah. There's now, a, um, yeah. Oh, well, I did have a, I had a vision when I was thinking about the idea. I was like, now That's if you good. had a million followers, 
and you had a little icon on Twitter, like a gauntlet. And every single post that somebody posted, all they saw was a thousand replies of a gauntlet and calling them out. You might be able to publicly shame people into it. <laughs> yeah. Maybe, but you would need yeah. a large enough of a network to do so. <laughs> yeah. I, th- I think that, yeah, you would need, you would just need to get the ball rolling and, and you might be able to do it with like a, you know, there's, um, I forgot the name of it, but there, you know, you could, you could pay some, you, you could pay some influencers to start going on and talking smack about, it. you know, you, th- I think that there sure. could be a way to, to there, get it I mean, going. It, it, there's probably ways to make it a viable business model. Yeah. But you, it, it would be one of those things where you probably need some investment money to get that. Absolutely. Rolling. Yeah. Uh, but no, I think it, it, you know, it could probably be done. I just don't think it would be done from any sort of uh, channel that exists out there today. Yeah. I think it would be a grassroots type thing, I, but I thought it would be a cool idea. I, yeah. I would love to have a, I would love to see people in debates. I don't, I don't care about people on a panel talking about, you know, everything that they agree upon, you know, that's no fun. Uh, and that's all news is, uh, you know, challenging of ideas is how we've always grown as a society. Right. Just, yeah. you know, those Lincoln Douglas debates. Yeah. Without those debates, those people, you know, that's how they understood their position in the, yeah. in, in reality, in, in, on, yep. on the planet, in the country. Um, yep. Yeah. And, I, you know, I think it would help. And I look around and I don't know about you, but, you know, most of I and I think that would solve one of the problems that I see is that most people, by and large, are just kind of lost. There's not a lot of direction. Most people yeah. just have their sail up in whatever direction the wind blows. That's where the wind blows. You yeah. know, nobody's trying to tack in any given direction. It's just uh, you know, we're all out. We're all out at sea. So, yeah. I I would love to do something like that. I've thought about doing something like that. Maybe you can inspire me to push me over the edge because technologically speaking, it's not that hard to do. Yeah, yeah. We should, and I think you you've even been in some debates. You and when we. Uh... I, let me let me shift a gear here real fast. Like I've seen some good ones. There's this one called the Great. Gosh darn, I think it's called the Great Debates, and they're a podcast, but they're out of Canada, and it's at the Roy Thompson Center. And they have like, um, you know, I've seen like, uh, you know, like, gosh, what are some good ones I've seen? Like, I've seen some good ones on believe it or not on COVID on, um, mm-hmm. on the Iraq war, you know, and they, they had, I saw one with Glenn Greenwald and the Hayden, who was like the, the guy from the CIA and they were talking oh, yeah. about Julian Assange mm-hmm. and it was, you know, they had the rules. It was like an Oxford style debate. You come out with your opening argument. This guy gets to respond. This guy comes out with his, his, he gets three minutes. This guy gets three minutes and it's fascinating. And the, you know, they're packing theaters. And I, I really think it wouldn't take that much, you know, like it would, that would destroy network news. Like if, and if you had it on television and it was something done on Saturdays, people would tune in and it would raise the level of discourse, not only in this nation, but nations around the world. There's so many talented speakers that could come out and would love to get their 15 minutes of fame. And sure. an, another one I saw was with Jordan Peterson versus Eric Dyson. And Eric Dyson is a master of rhetoric. I, I, I admire his oh, style yeah. somewhat, you know, but he came out like he came out and just got uh, just super cocky and like, 
one thing he does, like people talking, he's like, mm-hmm, to like try to cut in and like stop people. Like it's it's like trying to throw a jab when people are coming at you. And I get it, but it's so uncouth and such a sloppy style. And he comes out and he's like, you know, Jordan Peterson, you have this best-selling book, but you're just a mean white man. And the crowd's like, hey, he's a mean white guy. <laughs> and Jordan Peterson just goes, that's a hell of a thing to say during mm-hmm. the debate. That's a hell of a thing, Mr. Dyson. We're talking about this and that. Okay, you want to talk about reparations? How much? How much should you give for reparations? He's like, that's a great question. And he's like, well, then why don't you answer it? What yeah. percentage Without should the straw I man. pay? Without yeah. the straw man. Dude, yeah. it just crushed him. And Eric Dyson's yeah. like, he's a big guy too. And it just, for me, it showed how little of a foundation that guy had. He's a master of rhetoric. But when you get down to it, where's your foundation, son? You got nothing. You cut your knees oh, out right Most there. of those, most all of those people are none. I mean, think about it. it. What do you have to compromise of yourself in order to subscribe to something like that? I mean, you have to compromise your integrity, first of all. Yep. Uh, you know, uh, and then you're, and then after your integrity is compromised, I mean, it's just a downward slope from there. Uh, depending on where you happen to be, you know, on that slope when you're having that conversation, you can see it. You know, the, you know, it's oh, you sold out. You, you know, whether that be from a, a monetary perspective or whether that be from a mental perspective, uh, you know, you sold out to whatever idealism or tribalism or you know, a concept this is. Uh, without having any sort of rational recompense, evidence to support it, um, you know, you know, a a reasonable perspective in the world. And and I think that's pretty replete when you start to look at a lot of a lot of the most influential people from those types of arena. Yeah, yeah, Jordan Peterson's a wonderful cat. Uh, You know, I, I really enjoy what he's doing out in the world. Man, he's got just that guy is so deep on so many levels it's hard to wrap your mind around like he's a modern day dostoevsky or like he's a modern day true philosopher that like understands not only the words that he's using but the argument and what the true nature of the argument can be from multiple levels and that's a whole nother world man like i read that guy's book sometimes and i'm like what the what 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 how can how did you get there you know well, and he cares, he cares deeply about it. Yeah. Uh, you know, which is if, if you ever watch him really like speak on how he speaks, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like, I guess, for instance, he's on a book tour right now or something like uh, some sort of tour right now. Uh, and he's basically doing a live show every single day with new material, every single stop of his tour. So, you know, he's not going out there and rehashing the same speech. He's going out there and he seeks to explore individual ideas from his books and expand upon them, not necessarily for the audience's benefit, but for his own personal exploration of his of his words. How many people look at their own words and explore them that way? I mean, almost nobody, as far yeah. as, at least in, in my circle of people that I know. Um. So, you know, and there's a lot to be said about that. There's a lot to be, there's a lot to be said about also, you know, kind of what we're doing too is, is realizing that there's, there is a need out there. Um, I I don't fancy myself some grand order. Uh, (laughs) However, I realize that I do have a few words that can, you know, make an impact on people. And so it's like, well, if you got a few words, 
and somebody has no word, who, where's the obligation lie? You know, uh, and so, it, you know, there's a responsibility to knowledge uh, that's often not spoken of. Uh, and I think, you know, once you start to gain knowledge in the world, uh, you know, there is a responsibility to distill that knowledge to others. And I think truly great individuals recognize that and achieve that through various means, whether that be artistic or spoken word or otherwise. taking a moment to hang out with me in the true life podcast i truly appreciate it if you're taking some time to listen to this whether it's your first podcast with me or you've been with me the whole way 
I truly want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Additionally, I would like to try to inspire everyone. The world is a crazy place. And if you listen to your heart and you take some chances, I really think the world will unfold in front of you in ways you can't imagine. I've been doing the podcast for about five years. Last year, I decided to take the plunge. Well, circumstances dictated that I took the plunge. And I did. I've begun working on the podcast full-time for almost a year now. And it's been so rewarding to me that I just want to try and inspire other people. If you have a dream, if you have a vision, follow the voice in your heart. Listen to the song on the wind and embrace the challenge. I think you're strong enough, you're smart enough, and you're good enough to make your dreams come true. But you have to believe in them. And I truly believe wholeheartedly that if you take a chance, a real chance on what is possible, then your dreams will unfold in front of you. Uncertainty can be a monster. It can be something that we run away from. But much like fear, if you stand in front of it, it's not that big of a problem. I know everyone listening to this has a dream and a vision, and I hope you all conquer it. And I want you to know it's possible. Take baby steps and move towards it, and you will get closer to it. Your relationships will be better. Your life will be better. And you know what? You deserve it. You're an amazing person. If you get a moment, go down to the show notes. If you can, support the show. Thank you so much for being here. Now let's get to it.